if you hold back anything, I'll kill you. If you bend the truth, or I think you're bending the truth, I'll kill you. If you forget anything, I'll kill you. In fact, you're going to have to work very hard to stay alive, Nick. Now, do you understand everything I've said? Because if you don't, I'll kill you. Hello, my listeners. Do you want a lolly? Because if you do, you've come to the right place. With Bread Roll and JT. Today, his name is Mr. JT. <laughs> Amazing. That sounded a bit creepy, actually, Bread Roll. <laughs> um, hello, everyone, and we're back. We've been away for a couple of weeks due to various things, um, but we're back. And we are reviewing a, a British classic without giving too much away with the scoring at the end. Um, I think probably people know how this one's going to go. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. So, I I mean, I remember I was at school when this movie came out in 1998, uh, 28th of August 1998, according to Wiki. Um, and I remember my mate Chris, he lent me this because uh, he got it on video. Um, and I can't believe it's actually <laughs> that old now. But looking back, um, when I went to, watched it recently and the way it's shot and everything, it is extremely 90s and also fairly low budget. I mean, the budget was 800 grand, but it came back to 28.1 again, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, um, we should really say it's lock, stock and two smoking barrels if you haven't read the title of the podcast, which you should have done. <laughs> um, I actually went to the cinema to see this one, Bread Roll. Um, oh, showing no. my age a little bit there. I was obviously over 18 when it came out. Um, I can't remember who I went to see it with, whether it was a girlfriend or a mate. It's more of a mate's film, but I can't remember who I saw it with. Um, obviously, this is Guy Ritchie's first feature length. He'd done a couple of short films before this, but um, it's a pretty damn good debut, isn't it? it's not too bad as and he's pretty much gone from strength to strength hasn't he um i was just about to look then and see if this was actually his first movie and you've uh you beat me to it but yeah fair play to him i mean he's pretty renowned isn't he? he's one of the kind of uh the gems of the kind of british movie industry isn't he these days his name does carry quite a bit of weight he's not quite up there with like spielberg or anything but um for a british director he's done pretty well for himself yeah, he's done all right, hasn't he? I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about Snatch next week. Spoiler alert, not really a surprise. Um, and I watched A Gentleman the other day for the first time, which obviously these aren't sequels, but it's more in the vein of this and uh, Snatch. That was really good as well. I mean, he's, he has done some shit films as well, to be fair to him, but he's a box office sort of thing, isn't he? I mean, he, he's done some big films, whether they were good or not, that's um, for other people to discuss, but... These are really the only films of his I've seen. I haven't seen the Sherlock Holmes or the other shit he's done because it's not really my bag. Yeah, I've dabbled in a few of his films. I've seen the first Sherlock Holmes. Um, I didn't like it very much, personally. Um, and Rock and Roller, I think that was his one. I've seen that and obviously Snatch. Um, the, other than that, I've seen a few bits, but the last of his new films, if you want to call them that, I haven't seen The Gentleman, like you mentioned, uh, was the uh, King Arthur movie. And I thought it was fucking rubbish. Um, but then he is, like you said, like when he does a good movie, it's like pretty much superb. And then obviously if it's a shit movie, it's right down the bottom. He doesn't seem to have a middle ground <laughs> from what I've seen at the moment. No, I mean, this is his, his forte, isn't it? The sort of London gangster films. Maybe that's something to do with his past because um, he seems to write them very, they're very similar. The storylines in the sort of the three main ones he's done. I didn't like rock and roll much. I've only seen it once and it didn't click with me first time. Maybe I need to give it another go. Um, but I didn't enjoy it the only time I've seen it. I don't know about yourself. I was similar. I The first time I watched it was shortly after it came out. I watched it on DVD or Blu-ray, whatever. Um, and I didn't like it either. Even though I had, again, a bit like this movie, it's got a really big cast. But at the time, they probably weren't as big as they are now. We'll touch on that in a second. 
But the second time I watched Rock and Roll, it was actually last year. It was on Prime or Netflix. And I just stuck it on before bed one night. I thought it was actually a lot better. I think it just, it was a struggle following on from this and Snatch, I think. Obviously, you're expecting more and it went in a slightly different direction. But um, yeah, it's worth a second viewing, I think. Oh, maybe I'll give it another go. That's um, something for another time, though. Speaking of the cast in this, obviously, I think it was Jason Statham's first film, wasn't it? Certainly the first film where he broke out. Obviously, Vinnie Jones, there was a few eyebrows raised when he was cast, just finishing his football career. And me being one of the people who'd followed his football career, thinking, is he going to make it as an actor? Um, but, I mean, he's fucking brilliant in it as well. He is. He's really suited to this, isn't he? Because he's that, so he mm. plays, obviously, the heavy, the tough guy, but it's a very tongue-in-cheek thing. We've also got old um, P.H. Moriarty in there as well. Jason Fleming, who's gone on to do quite a few things. Dexter Fletcher, who's now a um, director. He's actually directing the third Sherlock Holmes movie, um, of all things, right now. And then you've got like, Nick Brown and stuff. But yeah, of all of them, I'd say Jason Statham's obviously gone on. He's kind of a, um, I wouldn't say he's a Hollywood A-lister, but he's certainly quite prominent in the action movie scene. Yeah, he is, isn't he? Um, I mean... Oh, well, he's done some really fucking dodgy films. <laughs> They're always entertainment. <laughs> two, peop- two people I, who I... Well, one person I totally forgot was in this film was Sting. He sort of obviously oh, yeah. plays um, Eddie's dad, doesn't he? And I totally forgot he was in it. And old uh, Rob Brydon is the traffic warden, obviously, who went on to Gavin and Stacey, amongst other sort of things. But didn't know he was in it at all until I was looking at the cast list before I watched this earlier. Oh, fair. No, I didn't... Um... I didn't even spot that. <laughs> I know, obviously, the Trapper Warden's in there and such, but, um, yeah, I certainly uh, didn't know that he went on to do other things. There's also, can't see him here on IMDb, but the guy from Snatch who plays Bricktop, he's in this for, like, 10 seconds, but he's kind of the narrator of the movie, isn't he? I can't remember his yeah. name. No, I can't either. But, yeah, he um, when he started narrating it, I was trying to think, is he actually in this film or not? Obviously, he's Bricktop in Snatch, as you said. And he, he's sort of like... Um, randomly seems to work for Sting, doesn't he? He's in the pub and he get, he pops up a couple of times very briefly. Um, but no, I can't remember his actual name. Um, I'll tell you who else obviously is in it. It's um, old Vaz Blackwood, the Shat Addo. Shat Addo. <laughs> Only <laughs> Fools. Uh, Rory Breaker in this. Who, again, watching this earlier, I'd forgotten how much of a big part Rory Breaker's got. I don't remember him obviously being in it as much. He's quite a pivotal character. He is. I mean, saying, I mean, all the characters in this movie and most of these sort of um, Guy Ritchie movies are quite memorable, but he's one of my favourites. And then you've also got, again, in the blink of an eye, is it Danny John Jules, the guy who played Cat in Red Dwarf? Yes. He's in it for like literally one scene. Yeah, he he narrates um, Rory Breaker's bit in the pub where he sets the guy on fire and it's so over the top Cockney rhyming slang, isn't it? Everything he says is Cockney rhyming <laughs> slang to the point where they have to have subtitles. Yeah, yeah, I can I get that from the comedy valley, but yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. But such as um, I think it's good because it gives this movie a lot of character. In a way, you know, we were saying like a while back when we were doing some of those Verhoeven movies, like Starship Troopers. Like he has a style as a director that you know it's his movie. The same mm-hmm. can be said for Guy Ritchie, just the way he shoots stuff and the certain way he plays certain scenes throughout his movies. It's, it's got that kind of recipe that you know it's one of his. Yeah, hundred percent. And when he does these sort of gangster films, yeah, I mean. Snatch isn't a sequel, but it might as well be. Different characters, obviously. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, that's his style. It works when it works. I, like I say, I haven't seen his Sherlock Holmes or any of those. Whether he goes down that route with those, you'll, you'll be more um, savvy to that. But um, yeah, anyway, I suppose we should really start looking at this film, Breadroll, before we digress too much. Yeah, exactly, before we go into the complete backgrounds of everyone. So um, the film opens up with Bacon and Eddie doing a hustle on the streets, a little bit like Dell and Rodney. Um, before being chased by the coppers. 
Bacon is a street peddler who knows his days of selling moody goods are numbered, while Eddie is a hustler on the card tables. We're then introduced to Fat Man, or Tom, who buys and sells just about every type of goods you can think of through various black market channels, and finally Soap, who was a chef and gained his nickname by uh, wanting to keep his hands clean of any unlawful business. So uh, pretty much a straight-up introduction to the, uh, the four characters, isn't it, really? Yeah, it doesn't mess about, does it? You get to see all four of them in the first ten minutes, and the, obviously the Dell and Rodney thing you mentioned there at the start just reminded me of Only Fools 100%. Um, I, I do like old um, Nick the Greek calling Tom Fat Man, which obviously becomes a running joke throughout the thing when he's skinny as a fucking rake. Yeah, he is. It's um, Jason Fleming who plays uh, uh, Tom. So anyone who knows what he looks like knows he's certainly not fat. That's Rich as well, coming from Nick the Greek, who is quite a porky bloke, no, not being funny or anything. He is. And um, obviously they're, they're um, sort of fucking hustling over these speakers, you know, some hi-fi thing that uh, Tom's trying to sell him. And um, he's like trying to fucking haggle over a couple of hundred quid. And he pulls out this wad. He's got about fucking 20 grand of notes in his jacket, in the old Nick the Greek. Yes, yeah, and fucking, they make some quotes, don't they? And like, Jesus Christ, you could choke a dozen donkeys on that. It's almost as bad as that, um, Boise, isn't it, during um, a losing streak when he just whips a grand out of his fucking jacket pocket and slaps it on the table. Yeah, but one thing I did know is obviously Nick the Greek pulls his wad out and they all sort of go, fuck me. Then Tom pulls out a wad nearly the same size from his jacket. Yeah, I love the bit as well when you meet um, Soap. Um, cause they sort of come in and at first they sort of come in like they're going to like do him over and then it turns out that they're all friends and everything. And they're all just talking normally. Then he just turns around and he goes, I keep your fingers out of my soup. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the long and short of this intro is they all need 25 grand each to get Eddie into this 100 grand uh, card game with Hatchet Harry, who we meet in the next scene. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Eddie, Tom, Soap and Bacon put together 100 grand so that Eddie, who's a genius card sharp, combined to one of Hatchet Harry Longsdale's high stakes three card brag games. The game is rigged and the friends end up owing Harry 500 grand. Harry then sends his debt collector, Big Chris, played by Vinnie Jones, who is often accompanied by his son, Little Chris, to ensure that the debt is paid within a week. And they pretty much, um, they get the money, they ring Harry. We get that little introduction, don't we? Harry runs like a, like a pawn shop or something. Then he's got his, um, his kind of heavy old Barry the Baptist, isn't it? He's funny as fuck as well. Yeah, <laughs> I did like the fact that, obviously, to emphasise it's a porn empire, he's just got loads of dildos and stuff on his desk, hasn't he? <laughs> Him and Barry are talking. Um, a sad thing, actually, I don't know if you saw this, but Barry the Baptist, the guy who played him, he died. Um, the, I think it was the month before this premiered, so the film's actually dedicated to him. It's a, a dedication right at the end of the film. I did, yeah, I, I did know that. Um, I actually watched a... It wasn't a documentary as such. It was only about sort of half an hour or so. I can't remember where I found it. It might have just been on Amazon, one of the random things they put up. And it was um, a bit of a documentary about him. And apparently he's like a really nice guy, but he was kind of like, I think he was genuinely like um, a bit of a geezer back in the day, like a bit of a street hustler, but he was really fun to be with on the set of this movie. Apparently he was like a gentleman. He was friendly to him all, but he helped him get all like the lingo and the kind of body language right because he actually came from the streets or something like that. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. He, he looks like, you know, one of those sort of guys. Yeah, I mean... He's a big, big guy, isn't he? And he's intimidating, but he looks like he'd sort of give you a hug at the same time. Yeah, because I was old. After Harry gets off the phone and everything, um, he picks up a paddle and he goes, What do you think of these? <laughs> and Barry's like, Very nice, Harry. What's it for? Don't play anything with me, Bazza. Spanking. And he just starts like fucking <laughs> whacking the desk with it. Yeah, there's some classic lines in this. There's too many, really, isn't there? I mean, the, the whole dialogue. I mean, 
I was reading a little bit about Guy Ritchie before we did this, and um, he says he, he Tarantino is one of his influences. And although the dialogue's very different, obviously it's very English, you can see a Tarantino influence, can't you, in some of it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as stupid as it sounds, scenes are progressed more through conversation than actions on the, on the screen, aren't they? Silly mm-hmm. as that seems, but usually in a movie, like, you know, there's always something going on. But some of the best parts of this is when they just kind of sat down at the pub chatting or driving along and it's just like a long conversation as them sort of like having a bit of banter. It works really well. But yeah, I could definitely see where that inspiration came from. Yeah, it does. And watching this again, uh, yeah, it's probably the first time I've seen it for a good 10 years. It's not as violent as I remember it being. There's a lot of suggested violence, isn't there, rather than you actually seeing it? Yeah, it's especially when we get introduced to um dog, isn't it? Um, the sort of mm. guy will catch up with him in a second is what his plot's in because he obviously kills that guy he's gotten strung up. And he throws a knife, but it's kind of off screen, isn't it? Which is strange. I mean, I'm not saying the movie needed to be like overly violent, but it is 18 rated. And I don't know if you remember, but when it first came out, it had a really weird yellow tint to it. It was yeah. shot in a really strange way. But when I watched it on, I've got the director's cut on DVD and that had the regular color picture. But now when you watch it on Prime, as I clicked on it yesterday and just sort of went through it, um, they've reset the tone. So it's now a normal color, but it used to have a really weird yellow tone that put a lot of people off. Yeah, it did. Um, and a couple of bits I noticed in one of the early scenes when the lads are, are all talking before, the, just as they're putting the money together, some of the background looked a bit off. It was all a bit blurry and stuff. And I was like, oh, I hope it's not like this all the way through. But either I got used to it or it wasn't like it for the rest of the films. I didn't notice it again. Oh, I didn't pick up on that myself, but um, interesting. I'm Next time I watch it, which I probably will do in the somewhere down the line, I'll try and keep an eye out for that. Hmm. Um. So Harry is also interested in a pair of expensive antique shotguns that are up for auction and he gets his enforcer, Barry the Baptist, to hire a pair of thieves, Gary and Dean, to steal them from the bankrupt Lord. The two turn out to be highly incompetent and unwillingly sell the shotguns to Nick the Greek, a local fence who is friends with Tom. Barry threatens the two into getting the guns back. Are these two fucking... Gary and Dean, man, they're fucking... I thought, well, the first time I watched this, I remember it, um, obviously it was years and years ago now, but I can't remember which one's which, but one of them I thought was Craig Charles at a glance, um, from again, from Red Dwarf, but um, it's not. It's just because he's, he's got a Liverpudlian accent. Mm. Um, and I thought, like, just the way he kind of looks, I thought, oh man, that's Lister there, but obviously it's not. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I actually, before I watched this yesterday, checked the cast list. I thought it might be um, the guy from This Is England, whose name totally escapes me now. What's his fucking name? You know the one I mean, but it's not him either. Um, but that, oh, um, was, uh, Stephen oh, Graham. Yeah, that's it. I thought maybe it was him in one of his earlier roles, but it's not. But he looks a little bit like him as well, and obviously with the Scouse accent. But maybe we're just stereotyping Scousers. There are more than like two in the world. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's quite funny. Obviously, these two are putting it for absolute comedy value because they are fucking useless. But you do wonder why Barry went to hire them. You think he would have had better fucking men to to hire, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, because he seems to know what he's all about, doesn't he? And again, like you said, he's like a fucking built like a bear. He could probably do the job himself if he wanted to. Um, and he just hires these two absolute fucking idiots. Uh, but that, yeah, like I say, they're in there for more comedy value, like more traditional comedy, like the slapstick stuff, instead of like the normal kind of like conversational cockney um, comedy that the rest of the movie kind of runs on. Yeah, and they kind of obviously bounce off each other. The fucking. Barry's calling him like fucking northern monkeys. They're calling him a soft southern shandy drinker. Obviously not to each other's face. Although I imagine Barry wouldn't be too bothered calling them that to their face. But 
I'd imagine you wouldn't want to call Barry a softy to his face. But before we meet all that, we do get a quick glimpse of the the sort of stoner guys who grow the weeds, don't we? Um, we get a little clip of them, and they're fucking useless, all of them. Winston's the only one who's got any kind of sense about him. Yeah, he's the only one who doesn't seem to be fucking, I don't know, like getting Stoned. high on his own supply, yeah. yeah. They, um, they've got this kind of, well, I don't know where the fuck they're supposed to be living, somewhere in the back streets of London. They've got this kind of cage on their door that's there for security, but they never actually lock it. And that's where we also um, get introduced to Plank, isn't it? Who works for Dog. He comes in there to buy, obviously, drugs and everything, the weed and whatnot. Um, but yeah, yeah, we get to see those guys. And they are fucking useless, a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the opening scene. Winston opens the, the door. The cage is obviously unlocked. And one of them, I can't remember what they're called. One of them was called Willie, I think. You've got Charles. I can't remember which one it is. It's not plank anyway he comes in he's got that woman unconscious on his arm and a fucking massive bag of fertilizer and winston just goes to him what's that that's gloria <laughs> she's just fucking totally <laughs> unconscious on his arm <laughs> yeah she kind of has a bit of a she's in the background in all the scenes for them but she has a bit of a kind of like crazy moment later on which obviously we get to she sure does yeah <laughs> So now Eddie returns home one day and overhears his neighbours, a gang of robbers led by the brutal man called Dog, planning a heist on some cannabis growing loaded, um, some cannabis growers loaded with cash and drugs. Eddie relays this information to the group, intending for them to rob the neighbours as they return from their heist. Preparing for the robbery, Tom visits Nick the Greek to buy weapons and ends up buying the two antique shotguns. This is where everything kind of starts to loop into like a weird circle, isn't it? It's like, so these guys are going to go and rob these dudes. We're going to rob them after they rob them. And now we bought the shotguns. They've already been robbed. And the fucking <laughs> hurry ones as well. So it's just this whole kind of weird kind of chasing each other's tail, isn't it, really? Yeah, they're all kind of looping into each other, like you say. One thing I, I did think is a bit weird. Obviously, he says Eddie says, oh, the walls are really fucking thin. Listen to this. And they hear them next door. But then when Ed um, and all these guys are discussing what they're going to do, you think they probably hear them. Do you know what I mean? They, 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 Dog and his crew don't seem to hear Ed in that, and they're not exactly being quiet, are they, when they're planning things? Yeah. Do you know one thing that's really weird as well? It's like, Dog, I mean, these guys obviously kind of like, they, they, they know what they're up to, don't they? They're like proper serious gangsters, really. How fucking tidy is his little house or apartment? I mean, it looks like so smart. It's like a little kind of like corner shop like i don't know office places i i can't imagine those guys actually decking that place out like that but it looks really smart yeah it is kind of a weird place it is almost like an office i mean they, they're next door to the minicab firm aren't they and at first i thought they were they were sort of holding out in the minicab office but they're not it's next door and then you've got ed's place which is an absolute shithole obviously next door to them i mean he says it, it's it's cheap that's why it's a shithole because you know places in london are not cheap as we definitely know yeah it's a proper old school building as well isn't it because later on mm. we see um obviously on the middle floor it's got the big kind of like wooden loading doors like where they used to like haul stuff up from the horse and carts back in the day so yeah i don't know what the name of the sort of place is but it's probably like a building like that nowadays would probably be listed because it's probably quite you know a bit of history really one of those things yeah yeah it is i mean the scousers have done the job now haven't they on the shotguns hence why the, the lads have got them i do like the bit where they go to um to get them and, um, I'm assuming it's like the butler or one of the guys, because um, the, the two sort of owners of the stately home, wherever it is, they're in bed. And he's got the gun and he shoots fucking matey's hair. Just yeah. puts a bullet. <laughs> and he said just a little bit earlier on that he, he um, spent 250 quid on his hair. That's why he doesn't want to wear a balaclava. And he shoots fucking parting right through the middle of it, doesn't he? He's like Afro he's got. 
Yeah, but as a disguise, he's literally got like a pair of knickers over his nose, hasn't he? Like pulled tight or something. It's fucking not covering anything. It's fucking ridiculous. But also, yeah. it just shows how fucking stupid they are because he's like burning the guy's feet and they're like, what you doing? Um, and he's like, I'm trying to find out where they keep their money. And then the other one's like, can't you see these people have got no money? They can't even afford new furniture. Obviously, that understands. <laughs> Obviously, in a fucking stately vintage home, pretty much everything's worth probably top dollar if you fucking sold it. Yeah, just little lines like that are just so funny and so like clever, aren't they? Just, yeah, just. Um, I mean, this this is down as a comedy. I mean, it is quite violent and it's a thriller as well. But there's a lot of comedy in it, isn't there? Yeah, it is comedy, and I think it's comedy because. Obviously, it's written really well, but all the actors, like Gog, for example, and his crew, then you've got um, Rory Breaker and that, they play their characters so seriously, which makes it even funnier, I think, because they're playing it like proper hardcore gangsters, but their dialogue is so ridiculous, and the situation is so ridiculous. It just makes it even funnier. Yeah, and apart from Harry and uh, Barry the Baptist, the rest of them aren't really hardcore gangsters. I mean, Dog's got his crew, but I mean, Plank's a fucking idiot. He's a Plank. That's probably why he's called Plank. Yeah. And the rest, the rest of his guys aren't exactly the brightest tools, are they? You've got the two Scousers who are just fucking incompetent. You've got, obviously, Eddie and his crew who aren't gangsters, but they're desperate for money now. So really, everyone... I mean, Rory, I suppose, is a bit of a fucking hard nut, but the rest of them are pretty useless, aren't they, really? Yeah. I just, I just thought of another line. I mean, like you said, this movie's full of them, but... That bit when they go to the bar and the card game's going on, when they first meet Rory without kind of knowing it. Um, and what is it? Um, Bacon's like, um, he asks for a, a drink. And the guy puts down like a cocktail, like a thousand umbrellas. It make Del Boy proud. And he's like, what's that? That's a cocktail. You asked for a cocktail. No, I asked you to bring me a refreshing drink. Wasn't expecting a fucking rainforest. You could fall in love with an orangutan in that. That bit always fucking cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's just the way when I ask for a refreshing drink. Imagine going to a pub and go, Oi, barman, refreshing drink, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, fuck off. You have a pint of Guinness. Think yourself lucky. Yeah. You're like, so, we've, um, we've brief. Sorry, I was just going to say, we have briefly met Rory Breaker um, as they're in the pub next door while Eddie's losing his money at the card game. They're not allowed to go in. So the guy's on the door send the other guys next door and that's where we very briefly meet Rory Breaker yeah he's just kind of in the background he's uh well being the shat ad though isn't he again really <laughs> he is yeah he's very <laughs> discreet at this point so the neighbours meaning dogs crew uh, their heist gets underway and despite a gang member being killed by his own Bren gun and an incriminating encounter with a traffic warden they succeed returning home with a duffel bag full of money and a van load of bags of cannabis Eddie and his friend, friends, got sound like Sean Connery, ambush them <laughs> and, and the drive away in the neighbor's van containing a mar- marijuana and traffic warden. They transfer the loot into their own van and return home. This is kind of like a switcheroo. And it's, it's, again, it's one of those things is that you know something is going to go wrong because Plank has been to this, uh, obviously, the dope smokers or growers place twice and the cage has always been open. That's why he says to the dog, oh, we should do the deal. There's loads of cash everywhere. They're all stoned and we can just walk in. The day they actually got to get it, do the job, the cage is shut, isn't it? Which causes them to get all fucked over. Yeah, I mean, you've got Winston and the other growers, for want of a better word. They're all upstairs counting the money. And I think for once, I mean, most of them are pretty stoned, apart from Winston, as we said, he's the only one who's really got any nous about him. But I guess because they're counting the money and everything, they've suddenly decided maybe we should be a bit more secure. Um, and it takes them a while to realise what's going on because... Winston, in the end, sends one of them down to speak to Plank. I can't remember which one it is, um, but 
it's the one who normally speaks to Plank. He's like, just fucking go down there, sell him some weed and get rid of him. And that's when shit hits the fan, isn't it? Yeah. And again, like talking about like the, the movie is violent, um, but not it doesn't show the violence as much. The guy faints, doesn't he? Because I'm dog shouting at him. And dogs are obviously a big bloke um, pointing a sawn off at him. And then he tells the others to come down. He like says, I'm going to blow up his toes. And he does just start blowing his like his foot off, doesn't he, with a shotgun? Yeah, you don't actually see him blow it off. But when it pans out and you see this sort of bigger area with the guys behind the cage, he's led there on the floor with his sort of foot hanging off. But you don't actually see the, the, the shot itself. But you hear it. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. pretty gnarly. <laughs> and then the stoners, uh, line of self-defence, is using like a, what is it, a BB gun to try and shoot them. <laughs> They're like upstairs, aren't they? Like peering through the floorboards or through the banisters or whatever they're looking through. And they're like taking pot shots, like you say, with a little fucking air rifle, BB gun thing. And he shoots Plank in the neck at first, and he shoots the other guy. And that's when uh, Dog comes out with that classic line there. Well, everyone just stop getting shot. Yeah, wasn't there? Ah, there was a song, wasn't there, in the 90s, um, one of those like chart clubby tracks that used Mm. that, reworked it, and that was quite popular. But yeah, for like when this movie came out, that was a bit of a quote, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and then you've got one of Dog's guys, like, Plank, I think, has got a sawn off, and he's got that fucking Bren gun, as we just mentioned. He just <laughs> fucking unloads of it, doesn't he? He doesn't manage to hit anyone, though. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know what he's firing at, because the guys are kind of upstairs, isn't he? Because <laughs> he's like, I've just been shot. as like, patch yourself up, you tart. It's a fucking air rifle. And they eventually <laughs> go up into the house, and like they see like this whole room full of like weed and everything, and all the money everywhere. And then it's old fucking Gloria, isn't it? She wakes up and picks up the Bren gun and starts unloading it. Kills a guy who actually has the gun. I was thinking the fucking size of that gun. I mean, no offence to her. She's not like a big girl or anything, is it? She'd go fucking flying backwards. I know I would if I fired that thing. Yeah, it's definitely got a bit of recoil, hasn't it? I mean, you see her on the sofa. I don't know how they didn't notice her. She blends in a little bit because she's off her tits. She's just sort of led there, passed out. And she's got very similar sort of patterned clothes onto the sofa itself, which is obviously playing into the fact they didn't notice her. But yeah, she's there and they're rooting through these, like, shoeboxes, the money's not there, then they realise it's out the back, and while they're fucking about, she wakes up, like I say, and all hell breaks loose, she unloads the whole clip. She only managed to shoot one of them, though, but she pretty much destroys the rest of the bloody room in the process. Yeah. yeah. And then Dog knocks so, her out, I think, doesn't he? He just walks up to her and fucking knocks her out. He does, yeah. <laughs> I love the bit as well, because it's obviously how loud the fucking Bren gun is and everything. There's one bit where it kind of I think one of the guys turns around and he jumps out from behind a room, one of the stoners, and he like stabs the guy and it sort of like does a shot of everyone ducking, the gun going off, and then they all stand up like covering their ears, all just looking fucking pissed off. Yeah, that's a brilliant bit. I mean, I'd forgotten about that bit, but yeah, the, it sort of does the slow-mo where she's just fucking unloading this Bren gun. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, they then have Nick fence the drugs to Rory Breaker, a gangster with a violent reputation, Rory agrees to buy the cannabis at half price, but two of Rory's men visit the house of the cannabis growers, discovering they've been robbed and the cannabis has just been bought. They, they, they've just bought, um, was stolen from their own growers. Rory threatens Nick into giving him Eddie's address and tasks one of the growers, Winston, to identify the robbers. So this whole deal they've set up for Rory Breaker to buy this weed, they obviously get Nick the Greek to be like the sort of middleman for it. He says he can't give him a sample, but it's as top as they can get. It turns out that these are uh, these drug people who actually work for Rory in the first place. Now Rory's really pissed off. He's just like they think they can um fucking buy, steal my cannabis and sell it back for me, and fucking goes off on this massive tangent. He is good with his lingo in this movie. Yeah, he's brilliant, isn't he? He's not quite the shadow in this one. 
I do like the bit as well. Obviously, Nick the Greek's fucking a bit nervous because Rory Breaker's fucking psycho. And he's got that drink, and he goes to put it on the table, and it's a glass table, and he just drops it through it and smashes the table. Yeah, because that's, um, that's one of my favourite lines as well. Because you see him like, get handed his drink, and he sips it, and his eyes start watering. And, Rory, and Rory's obviously just doing one of his little speeches, and he's like, just let me tell you one thing. If the milk turns out to be sour, I ain't the kind of pussy to drink it. He's like, fucking hell, that's, that's grim. <laughs> Giving someone sour <laughs> Yeah, it's just one thing I thought, though, watching this earlier, is like, why doesn't Nick just put the drink down? He sort of holds it about two inches above the table and drops it. It's like, why don't you just place it down? That's what normal people do. I know he's yeah. nervous, but fucking hell. How many fucking TVs does Rory Breaker have, though? He's got like 10 of them <laughs> on his fucking wall. Because obviously he's really into his sports and his football is um obviously Cat or Danny John Jules character obviously gives us a little story about people interrupting him when he's trying to watch his football game so he spits alcohol on him and sets him on fire um but yeah he's got like 10 tvs on his wall yeah yes he yeah he's got all kinds of sports and shit going on i mean he's got quite a nice little setup there and he's got his two big fucking sort of henchmen with him as well so he's pretty well protected yeah he's doing all right so um eddie and his friends spend the night in eddie's father's bar which obviously sting um to celebrate Dog's crew accidentally learns that their neighbours robbed them and set up an ambush in Eddie's flat. Rory and his gang arrive instead, and in the shooting shootout, all except Dog and Winston are killed. Winston leaves with the drugs, while Dog leaves with two shotguns and the money, but is uh, waylaid by Big Chris, who incapacitates him and takes everything. Gary and Dean, having learned who brought the shotguns and unaware that Chris works for Harry, follow Chris to Harry's place. So again, it's all like we've had the kind of good guys all mixing that, or good guys to use the term loosely, all getting mixed up in each other's business. Now, like the kind of the villains of the piece are all kind of getting mixed up again, aren't they? Yeah, quite handy for Eddie and his crew, though, because they're all taking each other out, aren't they? Yeah, because there's a signal that they turn up and literally everyone who's after them is just all dead in one room and they're just like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> yeah. I do like the bit. This is the bit um, where Rory's crew and everything go go to the place, and they've all got fucking massive shotguns, and a couple of them got machine guns. And Rory's got these two little pistols, hasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> and he goes in first as well. And they're like they're like probably like shitty little fucking I don't know like PP something like the James Bond guns, aren't they? And like say everyone else has got bloody shotguns, and then old matey boy in the house has got the Bren gun. Obviously, they didn't know about that, but you'd have thought he'd be packing something a bit more significant. Yeah, I mean, again, that's probably for, for comedy value. I mean, they're quite ornate little guns, but when you look at what everyone else is packing, I don't think he's going to do much damage, is he? Yeah. And then at the end of the shootout, he's barely got, like, a bit of dust on him. Like, everyone else has pretty much been blown to hell. And it's him and, um, as it, Winston, isn't it? Like, collecting all the stuff. But Rory looks like he hasn't even done anything. He's just kind of brushing it all off. Yeah. I mean, he, he does die in the end, doesn't he? Um Basically, it's just Rory and Plank, the only two that are left after the massive shootout. And Plank puts a sh- uh, sawn off to Rory's head. Rory lifts his two pistols up, and you just hear two shots. I'm assuming they both kill each other. Yeah, I guess so. Because um, you sort of just you see the sort of guns pointing at each other, don't you? And then um, Winston's outside, and he hears the shots, and then he just carries on loading up his van. Yeah, Winston thinks he's hit the fucking jackpot, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I would as well. Being in that case, I'd be. I'd throw it all in the van and have it away if I could. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's a couple of bits in this where they backtrack a little bit later on, which we'll get to, which I'm thinking, why the fuck would you do that? You're asking for trouble. <laughs> so now Chris delivers the money and guns to Harry, but when he returns to his car, he finds Dog holding little Chris at knife point. 
demanding the money be returned to him. Chris complies and starts the car. Gary and Dean burst into Harry's office, starting the confrontation that ends up uh, killing them, both along with Harry and Barry. Returning to see the carnage at their flat and the loot missing, Eddie and his friends head to Harry's, but upon discovering Harry's corpse, they decide to take the money for themselves. So, again, these guys are doing all right. They turn up at their house, everyone's dead. They turn up at Harry's office and everyone's dead again. So they're doing all right. Yeah, and also, in the meantime, they haven't realised that um, Chris has delivered the money because, um, obviously, Harry thinks the money's from the lads, but actually, well, technically it is, I guess, but in a roundabout sort of way. So the debt's paid off, but they haven't actually realised that at this point, have they? No, and they're still panicking pretty much, aren't they? And that bit rolled, um, as it Gary and Dean go into the because Harry's um, sort of sat on his desk and he's sort of cleaning the shotguns and for some reason he's loaded yeah. them um, but anyway <laughs> they sort of burst in and Harry sort of turns around and shoots one of them and then the other one comes in with his two guns shoots Harry then gets an, a knife in his back but in, as he's dying he sort of falls down and shoots Barry in the stomach and then they realise it's each other and it's like what the fuck are you doing here what the fuck are you doing here and then they just fucking die yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it, though? But again, it's worked out perfect for Ed and the crew. Like Everyone else has been killed for them even having to lift a finger. Yeah, we also get that kind of classic um, shot of uh, Big Chris, don't we? Like, when he crashes the car, um, or crashes it in a minute, he's like starts like um, smacking Dog's head with the car door, doesn't he? He drags him out and starts like smacking him to death with the car door, slamming it on his head and everything, which, again, comes back in Snatch, even though Vinnie Jones plays a different character. They kind of reference that in uh, the next movie. Yeah, I was waiting for that scene. I was thinking, when's it going to happen? I thought it happened when we first got introduced to Chris in this film, but um, obviously it's a lot later on. We're quite near the end now. The the opening scene when we first get met, sort of meet him is when he's got that guy in the uh, on the sunbed, and he keeps fucking shutting the door on his face or the, <laughs> the lid of the sunbed on his face. So then I was thinking, is that scene even in this film? Am I thinking of Snatch? But yeah, he probably batters poor old dog, doesn't he? Well, he probably fucking deserves it. Yeah. So before they're able to leave, Chris crashes into their car to disable Dog and then bludgeons him to death with the car door. He then takes um, the debt money back to the unconscious friends, but allows Tom to leave with the antique shotguns after a brief standoff in Harry's office. So that bit's from Wiki, and that's not quite right because Chris crashes and obviously beats Dog to death, as we mentioned. Then he goes to the guy's car, like um, soap and that lot. And it's like, oh, you're right, lad. So obviously checking on them. And he sees they got the money back. And he's like, oh, you cheeky bastards. Then he grabs the bag, doesn't he? And goes back to Harry's, where he yeah. finds Tom, who's then sat there with a the shotgun. And he's sort of pointing the shotguns at Chris. And they're not loaded, but Chris doesn't know that. And then he just kind of drops the money bag and they leave separately. But they don't actually, um, doesn't happen the way Wiki have put it there. No, I mean, that bit's narrated by old um, Bricktop, isn't it? And he says, basically, like you, said, you just said there, Chris didn't know the guns weren't loaded. And obviously Tom's fucking shitting it. So they both leave with, by separate exits. But that's the bit I was talking about where they backtrack. So obviously Ed and Tom go into Harry's place thinking they're fucked, basically. Find all the dead bodies and the bag with the cash. So Ed's like, right, let's fucking go. But then Tom's like, no, I want these shotguns as well. Now, if that was me, I'd be quite happy with the cash. I'd want to make a quick exit. I don't know about you. Yeah, especially if like you're in a room that's obviously... Your own house is full of dead bodies. Now you come to the guy you owe money to, which is now full of dead bodies. And what you want to walk around London with two fucking massive shotguns? Because that's even a running joke as well. Because they're antique shotguns, they're about a fucking mile long, aren't they? They're not like sawn offs yeah. or anything. And it's like, yeah, I'll be on your review. It's like, right, we've got a bag of cash. Let's just have it away on our toes and get out of here. 
Yeah, fuck the shotguns, mate. I'll take the 500k and make a run. <laughs> <laughs> so the friends are arrested, but soon acquitted after the traffic warden identifies Dog and his crew as the culprits. Back at the bar, they send Tom out to dispose of the antique shotguns, the only remaining evidence linking them to the case. Uh, Chris then arrives to give back the duffel bag from when, from which he has taken enough money to see himself and his son all right. Um, and he leaves in there an, a catalogue of the antique weapons. Leafing through the catalogue, the friends learn that the shotguns are actually quite valuable, 250 to 300 grand apiece, and quickly call Tom to stop him from tossing uh, the guns in the river. The film ends with Tom leaning over a bridge with his mobile phone in his mouth ringing as he prepares to drop the shotguns in the River Thames, which I know is a bit of one of those cliffhanger things. He's kind of holding on to, he goes to throw them off and they end up on a ledge. So he's like holding on to a railing. He's got the shotguns in one hand and his phone in the other. All he's got to do is put the shotguns back on the bloody ledge and answer his phone. Yeah. This is the only thing about this film that I just, I'm not too keen on is the ending. I, it's, it's good. And like you say, it tries to end on a cliffhanger, but you wouldn't even think about your phone. If that was me and my phone was ringing, I'd be like, fuck it, they'll leave a voicemail if it's that important. I'm, I'm, I'm getting these guns. But obviously, we don't really know what he does next. We're supposed to sort of think, shit, did he get the guns? Did he drop the phone? What did he do? We don't know. Um, but yeah, I just think the end, it's not bad, but it's just a little bit of a letdown, I think, throughout what's gone before it. Yeah. Considering how clever it was, was all like being twisted around. And also, they get acquitted because um, they say the traffic warden identifies Dog and his crew. But I'd still be like, well, what if you were the police, you'd be like, right, so why are they all in your house having a gunfight? You'd want to be like, well, you've got to be left to this one way or the other, wouldn't you? It's like they would just get off scot-free like that. Yeah, it's a bit flaky, isn't it? It just seems to all sort of end a bit easily for them. Like you say, there's fucking carnage at their place. There's obviously carnage at Harry's, which I'm sure in some way they could tie back to them as well. Um, yeah, it's not, you know, a particularly solid ending, is it? But, you know, I, I can let it off, really. Yeah, I mean, it's comical, isn't it? And it ends it in a kind of light, light-hearted, if you can call it that. But, you know, that kind of like, um, I don't know, just weird kind of way. But um, that is Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Should we look at giving this one some scores? I reckon, Breadroll, yeah. Who's going to go first on this one? Uh well, as you suggested, I think you should go first. Okay, yeah, I'll go first then. So this is a film we've been meaning to do for quite a while, this and Snatch, as we said earlier. We will be doing that next week, so there's no real surprise there. But it's been quite hard to get hold of, hasn't it? On Blu-ray, it's fucking expensive these days, and it disappeared off all the streaming sites. And then suddenly it popped up on Amazon. I got an email of new things on Amazon, and it, it popped up this week. And I was straight on to you. I was like, we need to do that while we, can, we still can before it disappears again. Um, so yeah, as I say, I, I went to the cinema to see this when it first came out and I loved it. I haven't seen it for a good 10 years, probably due to the fact it disappeared off the face of the earth and my Blu-rays also disappeared off the face of the earth. But I loved watching it again earlier. It's a fucking absolute classic. The cast is superb. The story's superb, apart from a slightly flaky ending. Dialogue, as we said, is amazing. It's just, it's fucking brilliant, isn't it? I mean, what a debut for Guy Ritchie. It's just probably couldn't have directed it or written a better film for his first one. It's one of my favourite British films, if not any film of all time. I don't really need to say much else. It's five others all day long for me and it will be for forever. It's just a fucking classic film. What about yourself, Bedroll? No, very good. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a classic, absolutely. It's um if anyone wanted to get into watching like British movies, this would be a good great place to start really. The like say the dialogues there 
it's obviously it's over the top but it's kind of it's self-aware it knows it's over the top and it knows it's ridiculous the cast is really good the writing's good I say the ending's a little bit floppy um and just the kind of how clever everything's been up to that point it's almost like he couldn't quite figure out how he wanted to end it but it's not a bad ending by any stretch it is just a little bit of a like well it's not really much of a cliffhanger because you can easily see a way out of that um as i say i watched this uh when i was at school 1998 uh, which makes me feel really old um now yeah i don't know four or five i'm really struggling where to go with this one i really like this film i like the soundtrack it's very 90s I think it's one of those movies that's aged better now that they've taken that yellow tint off of it. Because when I watched it on, um, as I say, I got the director's cut and some raggedy-ass DVD copy. And the standard cut, which I watched on Amazon yesterday, is now put back to normal tints. They've actually improved it over time. Uh, so credit for that. I think I'm going to have to give it five others as well because it's so quotable. It's a great gangster movie and it would be criminal not to give it five others. So yeah, five from me. Brilliant. Excellent, Brad. Well, I was worried you are going to give it four then. I was going to be upset. You <laughs> <laughs> can't give it any less than five, really. I mean, like you say, spot on. It doesn't take itself too seriously. I know it's violent, not ultra-violent, but it is pretty fucking violent. And there's, there's some nasty scenes in it. It's all done with somehow a comedic edge, isn't it? I don't know how he's done it. It's just genius. It is. And I know it's really weird to say, but there is... There's a lot about this, even though, again, it's 18 rated, there's swearing fucking left, right and centre. Um, and it is obviously an, an adult themed movie. Obviously, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't let your kids watch it, really, even though I watched it when I was like 14 or whatever. Um, but there's something about it that's just so British or British, as some people like to say. Um, and it actually does just in many ways. It's kind of like an 18 rated only falls and horses, the way the comedy works, and the way it all comes back full circle on itself. And I think that's why I like it so much. But yeah, definitely worth checking out. If you haven't seen it, it's on Amazon. And if you have seen it before, then go back and watch it again because it is classic. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really enjoyed watching it again earlier. Like I say, first time in a good 10 years, probably. And yeah, that Only Fools and Horses. I mean, obviously, it's based in London as well. But yeah, it is. It's like an adult Only Fools and Horses, really. Particularly, obviously, you, you get um, Bacon and Tom at the start doing their wheeling and dealing. I mean, it's a very short scene, but it was just like Dell and Rodney. And um, yeah, I mean, the language is pretty fruity, although... I think there's only a couple of C-bombs in it. I know Rory drops a couple. And compared to The Gentleman, which I watched a couple of days ago, that's littered with C-bombs. So obviously Guy Ritchie um, kind of introduced those a bit later on in his films. I can't remember what Snatch is like, swearing-wise. We'll find out next week. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of swearing. I don't remember the um, C-bomb. Actually, no, he's in there. Bricktop says it. But anyway, we'll get to that uh, next week. Yeah. So um, as always, thank you very much for joining us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our comings and goings, then follow us at The Hyperbaric Ghost on Twitter. And to all our regular listeners out there, thank you very much for joining us each week. And for me, Bread Roll, I'm signing off. And for me, JT, I've just got one last thing to say. It's been emotional.